Amen. You may be seated. Hebrews chapter 6 this morning as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Last week we ended the message with a challenge to all of us to go home and pray about and consider what would be a, a step that God would want us to take to keep moving on to maturity. The author of Hebrews is concerned that the recipients of this letter are slacking in their spiritual life, that they are becoming apathetic and lethargic and, and lazy. And he wants to engage and re-engage them in continuing to move forward in their spiritual life. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 1, we pick it up where we left off last week. He says, therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity, to press on, to push on to full growth, to full potential, to becoming all that God created us and saved us to be. And so we need to start there again today. Are we moving on to maturity? Are we being intentional in pushing beyond where we have come? Are we willing to, in a sense, go from the shallow end of the pool into the deeper end of the pool and be stretched and be challenged and let God take us where he wants to take us and not stay within our little comfort zones. Because through each stage of our spiritual growth, you know, we can go up to another level, but then we can also stagnate there. And so the author, being concerned about this, is, is giving us incentives and inspiration to keep moving toward maturity to keep progressing, to keep growing spiritually and increasing and advancing. And that's what this ministry is all about. It, it's for people who are not satisfied the status quo. They're not satisfied what they have experienced and what they have learned and what they, how far they've grown up to this point, but they recognize there's more. There's more of God for me to experience. There's more of God for me to know. There's more of his word for me to know. There's more things that God wants me to do. And I'm not just going to sit down here and say, I'm satisfied at this point. I'm going to keep on moving. And we saw last week that the first sort of incentive, if you will, that the author gave to continuing to move on is by revealing to us that we're either moving forward or we're moving backward. That again, there is no such thing in the Bible as just getting to a certain plateau and staying there and remaining there. Every believer in Jesus Christ is either getting closer to Jesus every day, becoming more familiar and skilled and competent in his word, uh, being challenged to discover new things and how God can continue to work through them, or we're moving backward. 
We're getting further and further away from God, becoming less skilled and less competent in his word, not using the spiritual gifts and talents and abilities God has given us to bless his people, and therefore we're going backwards. And the author talks about this in chapter 5, verse 11 through verse 14. He says in verse 13, you've gone back to needing milk, not solid food, or excuse me, verse 12. So the idea here is we're either going forward or we're going backward. And that's the first incentive in this passage to let go of where we've come to and be willing to move on to maturity. The second incentive he gave us also at the end of chapter 5 was that you and I have an obligation before God, a duty before God to move on to maturity, to continue to grow so that we can in greater ways benefit and bless our fellow believers. We can more encourage them, advise them, counsel them, instruct them as we continue to grow. As one of my mentors years ago told me, if I stop growing today, then I stop leading and teaching tomorrow. All of us should always be growing, you see. Because it's also out of that growth that not only I continue to move forward, but I put myself in a place where God can even use me to bless and benefit and profit other Christians in even greater and bigger ways. And according to the author of Hebrews, that is an obligation. That is our duty, and it's something that you and I are going to be held accountable for one day when we stand before Jesus Christ that we realize and finally recognize and acknowledge that God has not called us to grow and mature just for our own benefit, but he calls us to grow and mature for other people's benefit, for how we can bless those around us. So again, that's why when he comes into chapter 6, he says, therefore we must progress beyond the elementary instructions, the basics of the Christian life, the ABCs about Christ, and move on to maturity. Then he goes on to say, not laying this foundation again. And the things that now he's going to reveal at the end of verse 1 into verse 2 are basically the ABCs, if you will, the basics, the building blocks of our faith. Things that every Christian should know. Repentance from dead works and faith in God, teaching about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, I want to go back to that phrase, though, again, in verse 1, not laying this foundation again. Because another thing the author points out is the importance of a foundation. I mean, those of you that are in the construction business or you build things, you know how important a foundation is. A foundation is that structure upon which everything else rests. 
If the foundation is not strong, if the foundation is not firm, if the foundation is not stable, then there's very little that you can build upon it because the foundation will not hold it and support it. And the reason we need to stop here for a moment is we need to be reminded of how important it is that you and I have a strong spiritual foundation. In fact, it's one of the reasons why many Christians don't grow, don't move on to maturity, don't build their lives up to the degree that it could be because they've never really had a strong, stable foundation upon which the rest that God wants to build onto their lives can rest. I want to encourage you. that One of the things, again, we try to do here at the Oasis, and one of the reasons why we are asking God to give us our own place so that we can even provide more classes and and more instruction and more training is that we want to be a church where people can come and in time build a strong spiritual foundation for the rest of their Christian life to rest on. That's what we want to help people to do. Because without that foundation, then the rest is not going to happen, you see. We see this throughout our society today, even amongst Christians. It's one of the reasons why marriages struggle so much in our society. Because you've got two people, two individuals, who get married to each other and really have not established that relationship on a strong foundation. Therefore, in time, as they try to build this relationship in this marriage, the foundation that they have at the beginning of their marriage or even in the first few years is not able to support that marriage and that relationship over the long haul. Many couples almost need, if their marriage is going to survive, to go back and literally establish a foundation that was never there to begin with or else the relationship doesn't last. That's true throughout life. That's just a sort of a, a principle, an axiom in our, in our world that God created. It's how important foundations are. And it's why the author is taking time to say, listen, I'm glad you guys have a good foundation, but don't be satisfied with the foundation. The reason why God has given you that strong foundation and why he wanted to establish that strong foundation is because he wants to build a lot on top of that. And the only way you can build a lot on top of that is for that foundation to be strong enough to hold it and support it. So another question out of this passage is not only am I really do I really have a desire to move on to maturity? Do I realize that if I'm not moving on, I'm moving backward? If I'm not making progress, then I'm sliding backwards. But the second thing is that I'm not just to move on to maturity for myself, but so that I can more profit and benefit those around me. But then the other thing he's saying here is, do I even have the foundation to do it? And if not, maybe the acknowledgement and the realization for many people today is, 
That's what I need to do first. Instead of trying to build on this foundation, I need to make sure that I have a strong, spiritual, stable, firm foundation upon which all this other stuff that God wants to do in my life and build into my life can rest. Because again, the foundation is that structure upon which everything rests. It's true in our lives. And, it, and, and let's, let me say this. One of the reasons why God takes time doing things and why he's not concerned about just getting to the next thing like we are as human beings and taking time is because it takes time to build a solid foundation. It's one of the reasons why I think God has given us five plus years here, even at our church, to still be building a foundation upon when we get to that other location, that that is going to be built on the foundation that's already been established here. And in a sense, we're still building it, you see. It takes time. And a lot of folks don't want to put in the time it takes to build the foundation. They want to go on to the structure itself. But the problem is, as they do that, then it becomes very clear and very evident later on down the road, I don't have the foundation to support it. That's why a lot of even businesses fail. Because they don't take the time to build the foundation before they start expanding and growing and then they realize we don't have the foundation within our business to sustain our growth and our expansion. And then guess what they've got to do? Got to pull it back in. Because they've overextended themselves because they didn't build the foundation strong enough first. So he's reminding us of that as well. But then he comes to verse 4. And these next verses are some of the most controversial in the entire Bible. They've caused a lot of pain and heartache over the years. And I'm going to share with you what my interpretation of these verses are. Obviously, with always the intent that you study it out for yourself. But these are very serious words that the author gives here. And I believe it's another great incentive and motivation and inspiration for us to continue to move on and make progress in our spiritual lives when he writes these words. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy, which literally means to go back, to fall away from God, to renew them again to repentance. Now, the author of Hebrews uses the word impossible a lot in his letter. And it's the strongest word he could use. It doesn't mean improbable. It doesn't mean difficult. It means impossible. And you and I, who, you know, come from many times, well, with God, all things are possible, but yet, even in the way God has designed things, he even designed some things to be impossible. In fact, three other times in this letter, the author uses that word. 
He says later on in this chapter that we're going to see next week, it's impossible for God to lie. Then later on, he says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to ever take away sin. And then lastly, in chapter 11, he says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Here, he says, it's impossible to ever be renewed again back to repentance. What's he stating here? What's the meaning here? I believe that the meaning is simply this. You and I, in God's world, cannot ever recapture the time that we have lost. We can't go back in time and do it over again. We can't, there's no such thing in God's economy as a mulligan when it comes to life. I, I, don't, I don't travel this far and then go, oh, you know what, God? I, I want to start over again. Can we go back and start my Christian life over again and, and let me, you know, get that foundation right and whatever and, and then let me grow and mature? No. So I think what the author is saying here is, It's impossible to make a second beginning. It's impossible to go back and have a do-over in our lives. Once this time is past, we can never recapture it. Once one day goes by that we haven't moved toward maturity, that's one less day we have to move toward maturity. Once we let one week go by, one month go by, one year go by, we can't go back and say, hey, can I live that year over again? You and I get one life. There is no such thing as reincarnation. There is no such thing as, okay, we live this life and then all the things we learn in that life, then we get to come back and do it all over again. It's impossible. We get one chance, one opportunity to live this life. And every hour, every minute, every day that goes by that we're not moving toward maturity, that we're not taking advantage of our opportunities, are days and months and years and hours that we can never get back. It's impossible. That's what the author is saying here. In fact, in verse 1 of chapter 6, Notice the very first word that he uses to describe the foundation of our lives. Repentance from dead works. And notice then up in verse 6, he says to renew them again to repentance. To that initial change or conversion. You and I can't make a second beginning. We can't go back and recapture. What we can do is make the commitment that the rest of my life, I won't waste it. I, I, I will recognize that my life is a vapor, as James says. I will recognize that this is a very short life. And as Moses even taught in the Psalms, 
Help me, God, to literally weigh out each day, to recognize the weight of each day so that I can live wisely. Other translations say it this way. Teach me, God, to number my days so that I can apply my heart to wisdom. Let me make the most of every day because every day that goes by that I'm not taking advantage of my spiritual opportunities and spiritual growth is a day I'll never get back. And we have to realize that. That's an incentive that the author is giving here to his readers of why we need to get serious and keep moving forward. Because we can't recapture lost time. In God's economy, that is an impossibility. And then he goes on to say this. This is pretty serious as well. In verse 6, he says, and, and by the way, the description that he's giving in verses 4 and 5 is clearly speaking to Christians. This is not a description of unbelievers. And we know this because the whole book of Hebrews is written to brothers and sisters of this author. He's writing to Christians here. He's warning them and inspiring them and motivating them and exhorting them and urging them to grow and to keep growing and becoming all that they could be in Christ. Because again, if we're not moving forward, we're moving backward. We're not becoming who we should be, not just for us, but for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we don't have a solid foundation, then we can't even build anything on it. And by the way, all time lost is gone forever. We don't get it back. And he says, here's, here's another sobering thing about those Christians who fall away from God and go backwards. Notice what he says in verse 6. They, since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding him up to contempt. Wow. What's he saying there? He's saying that when a Christian falls away from God and goes backward, that in a sense, by our life and the way we are living, we are affirming the same thing that the original crucifiers of Jesus did. Why did they put him on the cross? Why did they crucify him? Because they did not believe that he was the son of God. And the author is saying, when a Christian lives this way, who is so casual and lethargic and apathetic and complacent about their relationship with God, it's as if they're telling everybody around them, Jesus Christ really isn't the Son of God. Because if I really believed that he was, my life would reflect differently. My priorities would be different. I would be engaged spiritually. I'd be more faithful. I'd be more committed. I'd be more devoted. But because I'm not... I may as well be like the original crucifix. I'm saying by my life, Jesus Christ really isn't that important. He's really not the Son of God. 
See, that's one of the reasons why God calls us to be the people of God that he does. Because not only by our lips, but by our life, we are to be telling and witnessing and evidencing to other people around us that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. And I will do anything for him. I will lay down my life for him because I believe he is who he claimed to be. And there's no one more important in my life than him. And there's nothing but his cause that is more important to me than that. And yet when Christians live such lackadaisical Christian lives, whether we are conscious about it or not, we are basically telling those people around us, saved and unsaved, Jesus Christ really isn't that important. He's really not God. He's really not the king of kings and lord of lords and ruler and master of the universe. Because if I really believed that he was, my life would look a lot different. In fact, the word contempt that he uses here at the end of verse 6 means to dishonor or disgrace him. By the way we live our lives at times, we can actually bring dishonor and disgrace to Jesus Christ. Then he uses an agrarian illustration. Again, trying to inspire and exhort and motivate his readers. He says, listen, not all ground that receives the same rain, the same advantages, is equally productive. And he says that's why Christians can have sort of equal advantages as far as the blessings from God that they give. We all have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We all have the Word of God. We all can pray. We all have similar advantages, and yet you can look at two different Christians with similar advantages, and one can end up being very productive, and another one can't. And he says the same thing is true with farmers and their land. Notice he says the ground that soaks up the rain, that absorbs the rain, that frequently falls on it, it yields useful vegetation. It bears fruit. It bears beneficial growth for others. And of course, we know that the New Testament is full of references to us being fruitful. Jesus even said, my Father is glorified when those who follow me bear much fruit. John chapter 15. For those who tend it receive a blessing from God. And the word tend may be the key word in that whole verse. For it means to work at, to cultivate, to develop. It's the idea of stewardship. That God has given us advantages and opportunities and resources spiritually. What are we doing with them? The ones like the farmer who work at it, who cultivate, who develop, who are good stewards and good managers, they're going to produce a fruitful crop that not only, again, blesses them, but is beneficial and profitable to others around them. But then he says, but if it produces thorns and thistles, it is useless. The word simply means it fails to gain God's blessing like the previous land about to be cursed, its fate is to be burned. 
doesn't mean the person ends up in hell. It simply means that their life, for all practical purposes, is burned up. They have nothing to show for all the advantages that they were given by God. All the resources, all the opportunities. And can I say, I think I even blogged about this several weeks ago, we are living in a day and age that, yes, may be more challenging to Christians than ever before, but we are also, through our technology, living in a day and age where Christians have more resources to grow than at any time in history. If you really want to grow as a Christian, there are websites and there are, there's so much information and material and helps out there for those who really want to move on to maturity. Things that people hundreds of years ago could have never dreamed of having at their fingertips. I mean, not that I recommend this, but one of the great theologians of all time, Calvin, his whole institutes, volumes that he wrote, is out there for free. People that, you know, you would have never dreamed you could have stuff like that, you know, Volumes of people's systematic theology that are sound, solid stuff out there for free nowadays. You don't even have to pay for it. And I love this, though. He's been pretty hard on his recipients of this letter. But I think, I think why I like the book of Hebrews is because I understand it. it this, this person has... I think, a, a, a shepherd or pastor's heart. He so wants his readers to become all that they were created to be, and, and he has such a passion to see it in their lives because he knows that's going to be for their well-being. It, it's going to go better for them if they will just listen to God and follow God and go where God wants them to go. And, and you know how hard it is sometimes to get people to move. It's hard sometimes to get us to move. And, and he's trying to get these people to keep moving and stop sitting down and stop relaxing and let's keep going on. We can't afford to sit down. And so I love what he says in verse 9 when he says, but in your case, dear friends, the only time he uses this phrase in the whole letter, which literally means beloved. You are beloved by God and you are beloved by me. He says, even though we speak like this, and I've said some really hard, sobering, serious things, he says, we are convinced of better things relating to salvation. Basically what he's saying is, I believe that you're going to take what I have said to you and you're going to move on. That even if you were contemplating sitting down or, or becoming a little apathetic or lethargic or lazy, that these words of mine through the power of the Holy Spirit will stir you and spur you to keep on moving so that you will experience all that salvation is meant to be. That it's not just meant to be bringing us into a right relationship with God and the forgiveness of sins. But it is about experiencing this abundant life that God wants his children to experience. 
And that's why he says the better, greater things relating to salvation. Then in verse 10, he gives another incentive. He says, for God is not unjust in any way so as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name and having served for, literally cared for, and continuing to care for the saints. A couple things. First of all, he says, God will never overlook or fail to notice one thing that you do. And a lot of times we take that in a negative. Oh, God, again, sees everything that I do. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. But let's look at this today as he does from a positive standpoint. What he's saying to his readers is keep on moving the maturity and fight the good fight and continue to work and put the effort in and stay committed and stay devoted because God will never overlook that. God will not fail to notice that. He will reward you richly one day for it. In fact, I believe that God one day, especially in glory in heaven, will reward us for things that we didn't even remember. I did that? You're, you're rewarding me for that? I didn't, I didn't even remember that. Because God doesn't forget anything. You and I, we can forget. We can overlook things that others do for us or that we've even done. We might fail to notice what little act of kindness someone does He's saying God will never do that. So don't think for a moment that what you are doing is going unnoticed. Maybe your family doesn't notice. Maybe your friends don't notice. Maybe your brothers and sisters in Christ don't notice. But God will never fail to notice your commitment to Christ. And he will bless you and reward you and favor you for it. And then notice here also in verse 10 a very important principle. Notice he says that God is going to uh, not forget your work and love that you've demonstrated for his name. And then he qualifies that in caring for and continuing to care for the saints. That means that from God's priority list, it starts with how I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ. So many times as Christians, we focus on, I've got to show love of Christ to the world. Yeah, that's important, but that should actually start with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Then I go out to the world. Too many Christians bypass their fellow Christians and show more love to those that don't know Christ than they do to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And the priority in the Bible is it starts in the church. It starts with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like it should start in our own families first. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6.10, Let us therefore, as we have opportunity, do good unto all people, but especially, he says, to those in the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. Why does Jesus say, if you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me? And then he says this. But we, verse 11, passionately want each of you to demonstrate the same eagerness, diligence, giving your best, for the fulfillment of our hope until the end. 
Here's the other sort of part of this. If you and I are going to make it to the end, then we've got to buy into what he's saying here. We'll never successfully make it all the way to the end. And that's where God isn't as concerned about how we start the life as well as much as how we finish. God wants to see his people finish well. And too few Christians are finishing their lives well. Because again, they don't have the foundation that they, that they have built to sustain them over the long haul. It's a short burst. It's good for a little while, but over the lifetime or marathon of life, they can't sustain it because they don't have that foundation. And then they don't continue to build on that foundation through the years. Somewhere along the line, they stop, they're satisfied with where they're at, and they start to go backwards, and they can't finish well. And the author is saying, if you want to maintain that hope until the very end when you and I see Jesus, then you got to move on to maturity and let go of the things that's holding you back. That's why Paul could so triumphantly say in 2 Timothy, I fought the fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. He's saying, I didn't start out well in life. Remember, I was the chief persecutor of the church, but I sure did finish well. I kept it going until the very end of my life. And then he says this in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, a word that we've already been introduced to, which means lazy, apathetic, or lethargic, but imitators, following the example of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promises. Such an important point. I almost hate to end on it because I feel like I'm not going to give it its, its due. But please hang in there with me for just a couple more minutes. This is so important and such a powerful incentive to continue to move on to, to maturity in our lives. What he's saying in chapter 6, verse 12 of Hebrews is basically this. Many people of God, many followers of God, many Christians never realize the promises of God in their life because they never hang in there long enough to see them realized. That's what he's saying. See, he's saying that in order to really see the promises of God fulfilled in my life and become a partaker and possessor of them, I've got to be faithful. I've got to exhibit perseverance and endurance. I don't just get to experience the promises of God overnight. I've got to stay on a path and keep to that path over the long haul. And if I'm willing to do that, then I begin to see the promises of God unfold in my life. That's what Hebrews chapter 11, later on in this very letter, is all about. And if you've been in the series on Joseph on Wednesday night, you know that. Joseph was given a promise of God years before he finally realized it. And it was only because that young man was faithful for 17 years of his life through being unjustly accused of a crime, thrown into prison, forgotten while he was in prison, all through that, the hatred of his family, all of that. He endured all that, but stayed faithful. And it was only because he stayed faithful over the long haul that he finally was able to receive the promises. 
See, part of the problem today is our worldly philosophy has so crept into our Christian culture, into our Christian mindset, that we never see promises of God realized because we have bought into that instant gratification, I'm going to do this and expect this right away from God type of mentality. And that doesn't work with God. God doesn't work that way. God says, I'm going to make you a promise, but here's the deal. You're going to have to stay on this road for a while. Because through that road, through that process, through that training, I'm going to build you stronger. I'm going to build a strong foundation. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to stretch you. I'm going to challenge you. But if you stay with me and trust me through that whole process, then you're going to see the promise. Our problem is because many Christians, again, don't know the word of God well enough to even know this principle. They start to get very disillusioned with God pretty quickly in their Christian life. Because they're like, well, God's given me all these promises, but I'm not realizing and experiencing any of them. Well, how long have you been on that road? Oh, a couple weeks. Oh, okay, boy, yeah, you've really, you're really persevering. No, the author says this. The only way we will inherit the promises of God is by not ever becoming sluggish and by following the example, becoming imitators of those who through faith or literally faithfulness and perseverance, spiritual staying power, endurance, Inherited the promises. What great incentives he's given us to move on to maturity. I hope that the word of God has inspired you like it has me to not rest on our laurels as a church or as individuals, to not be satisfied with what we've attained so far, but to say, God, keep me going. Keep me moving more and more towards all that you created me to be. Our worship team's going to come and we're going to sing this last song and I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. But the last song that we're singing today is that Jesus would be the very center of our life. And I hope that as we sing this song, as a declaration to Jesus that these aren't just words that we're singing because it's the last song and we're singing it. I hope we mean the words that we sing. And if we truly want Jesus Christ to be the center of our lives, then guess what? Everything that the author has said up to this point in the book of Hebrews will be something that we're willing to adopt in our lives. We won't be satisfied with what we know and what we've attained and how far we've come. But we will realize there's more to go. And I know as the pastor of this church, God has way more for us in the future than what we've ever even imagined in the first five years. But God is preparing us God is getting us ready. 
God is continuing to build this solid foundation so that all that he wants to build on top of that and through us will be able to be supported. And that's why more than ever, God has me, even as the pastor, so laser-focused because this is not a waste of time from the time that we actually do acquire that land and that building starts to go up, it's not just looking to that. It's realizing that the things that we're going to be still doing here at Basha week in, week out, are absolutely vital and essential to what's going to happen in that new location. So I hope you're with me. And can I say, because I know most of you pretty well, I believe about you the same way that this person believed about his audience. As I look at you, I am persuaded of better things. I don't believe that I have a people here who come to a church like this, or you wouldn't come to a church like this if you were satisfied with where you were spiritually. The whole reason you are part of a church like this, and you try to get other Christians to understand the importance of being part of a church like this, is because you realize there's more. There's more. Father, we pray today that each of us would commit ourselves to moving on to maturity with you, to full growth, to full potential, to become, God, all that you created us to be. But the only way that we do that, God, and the only way that we sustain that over the long haul is by making Jesus Christ the very center of our life. As we sing this song, God, may we truly mean the words we're saying and singing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand, let's make this song a song of dedication from our hearts to Jesus today.